Romans 4.1, Paul says, What shall we say then, that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of the circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for there where is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all. The seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And God, we ask for just the help and aid and assistance of your Holy Spirit, even in this time as we open the word of God. Lord, we want to continue in worship, as we prayed and sang, we just ask that we could, as an attitude of worship, submit our hearts to the truth of your word and honor you by believing that there is something that you would say to us through your living and powerful word. So prepare us accordingly and please speak to each one of us personally and just in a real powerful and direct way. Let us hear your voice, Lord, and bless your word and speak to us by your spirit's ministry, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, oftentimes when someone is speaking, maybe in a lecture or a coach is trying to explain something, or maybe someone is conducting a teaching, they may make the statement, let me illustrate that for you. You know, when you look up the definition of the word illustration, it refers to an example or an instance that help make something more clear. That's what an illustration does. It's an example or an instance that's shown to help make something, maybe already stated, more clear so that you can grasp a hold of it and have further validation and an understanding of it. Well, Romans chapter 4 is a chapter that illustrates justification by faith. 
It is a chapter that Paul then takes here to illustrate what he just declared to us in our study last time in the book of Romans at the end of chapter 3, which is the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, we said last time as we looked at Romans 3, the latter half together, that justification by faith is basically, by definition, where God, holy, righteous God, declares a guilty sinner righteous or right in his sight because of their faith in his son Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished on their behalf. So again, it is God who is holy and righteous and just who has been sinned against by a legitimately guilty sinner. He chooses to declare that person, however, forgiven and righteous in his sight, acceptable in his presence because of their faith in his son Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for them. Remember Paul said back in Romans 3, look at it there with me, verse 21, he said, but now there's a righteousness of God that comes apart from the law that is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, it was spoken of in the Old Testament, which we see illustrated now in chapter 4. And he says, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, it's to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. So because of the finished work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross as the sinless son of God, as our substitute and shedding his blood to make forgiveness for our sins available, God can forgive our sin and give to us on a just basis the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ into our spiritual account where he removes our debt of sin and he then deposits the righteousness of Jesus into our spiritual bank account so that we can be acceptable in God's presence now and ultimately then have acceptance and access into his presence after we die. That's why Paul said there in Romans 3:28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified, made right with God. A man is justified by faith, notice, apart from the deeds of the law. Well, Paul now wants to take chapter 4 and he wants to illustrate that by personal example. How does that play itself out? What does that look like? Can you further explain that to someone who might? Well, God wants to reveal to us that him declaring people righteous by faith and not by works or efforts, is really not something new at all. God has always operated in that way, honoring faith and belief in the heart of people towards him. And he wants to prove that this principle of God's righteousness deposited into a person's spiritual account, not by their works, but by their faith, is not some new idea. And that's important because you have to understand, again, as we've been talking about, especially for the mind of a religious Jew, who cling to the rites and the rituals and the ordinances of circumcision and keeping the law and the traditions of their Jewish faith, this idea of hearing that a person was saved, a person was forgiven, made right with God as a gift that was freely given to them as they believed would be very, very difficult for them. They would instantly be, wait, wait, wait a minute here. This is something really new then that you're talking about because our patriarchs, 
they adhered to the law of God and they observed circumcision and, and they had to establish and maintain their righteousness. In other words, they, they had to work for it the old-fashioned way. What's this thing about just believe and you're made right with God? And this would be difficult. So Paul in response wants to show via two examples, Abraham and David, who they greatly looked up to, that this has always been the way that God has worked and it's not something new at ever at all because God has always responded to the faith and a genuine relationship in the heart of a person to make them right in his sight. So he uses two men, as I said, who were highly esteemed in the hearts and the minds of Jewish people, Abraham and David. Abraham, of course, lived 400 years before the law of God ever came. And yet he was declared righteous by his faith before the law of God ever came into existence by believing God's word. David, King David, lived generations after the law came. So Paul takes both sides of the spectrum. King David, one of the greatest kings in Israel, came after the law. And he as well was made righteous by his faith alone and not by his works and behavior and good efforts. So Paul begins here in verse 1 with this idea by saying, What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? In other words, Paul's saying, What do we find if we go back and look that Abraham, our forefather, experienced during his time in the flesh while he lived on this earth and remember, Abraham was the father of the entire Jewish nation. He was the founder of the Jewish people. He was greatly esteemed. He was considered the father of the faith. So they had great uh, respect for Abraham and esteemed him as a model of spiritual life. They looked up to him as their founder, as their forefather, and the example of the faith. And therefore, Paul, knowing that, he says, well, question then, what was Abraham's spiritual experience while he was alive in the days of his flesh. Well, for starters, it is true that Abraham loved the Lord, that he served God faithfully. We know he obediently answered God's call in Genesis chapter 12 to leave a life of idolatry and to follow God. Abraham built altars wherever he went. So he was a worshiper of God. He loved the Lord. He was obedient in the way he served God. He even, remember, was willing at one point to sacrifice his own son out of love and obedience to God in Genesis chapter 22. Yet all those things considered, Abraham was by no means a perfect man. He was still a sinner. He was still faulty in many different ways. For example, prior to Abraham's call in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was an idolater. He, he was a pagan man who worshipped foreign gods. And even after answering God's call, Abraham faltered in unbelief numerous times when he would leave where he was and went back down to Egypt. And remember there he lied about his wife which was the first of many times he committed that sin and shortcoming in his life. And then Abraham as well, growing impatient with God, at one point took his wife's advice over following God's will. You remember the story and did what? He slept and had sexual relations with his maidservant Hagar to conceive a child, which is the origin of the entire Mideast crisis today. So oops, Abraham had a pretty big blunder there. The point that Paul wants us to see is that Abraham was far from a perfect man. 
Yes, he loved God. Yes, he was obedient to God. Yes, he worshiped God. But his obedience to God still had faultiness. There were shortcomings in his life. He was a sinner in the midst of his spiritual journey. And his practices and obedience were not perfect. And Abraham would be the first one to admit that were you to ask him. Paul says, verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works or made right by works, then he has something to boast about. But Paul says, but certainly not before God, never before God. The point Paul's making in verse 2 there is though people may look righteous and holy before others, and many times we want to seem impressive spiritually to act like we're more spiritual many times than what we really genuinely are, what Paul is saying here is we got to remember God measures by a different standard. Not the standards that we use of what's right or wrong or what's righteous or spiritual. We need to remember that God measures by a standard that is much higher. And even if, Paul says, even if Abraham could make himself somewhat righteous through his works and good efforts and religious activities, he says, well, then maybe he might have some reason to boast or to brag. But he says that boasting and bragging would only be before people that he seemed to be better than because of what he did in comparison to what they did. But he said Abraham would never have grounds, nor would he ever try to boast of his own righteousness before God. Because Abraham knew just as well as God knew that he never perfectly walked the line, that he had failures and shortcomings. And he understood that God judged him by a different standard than man did and that God knows all of our errors and all of our shortcomings, publicly and privately, even the ones that only we and God know. And so because of that, Abraham would never have grounds to boast before God as being good enough or acceptable enough to stand confidently before God on his own works or merits. He would never do such a thing and recognize that, and, and Paul did as well. He says, verse 3, for what does the, notice, Scripture say? He quotes Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, please notice verse 3 here. This is the real question. Paul says, wait a minute, slow down here. He says, what's the Bible say about all this? What's the scripture say in regards to this matter of how Abraham, as an example, was justified or made right before God? What does the scripture say in relation to that? Not what do people say, not what does you know, religious traditions say. No, what does the scripture say? There is that six-word question, again, of critical importance. You find it here in Romans chapter 4. You find it in very close variation in Galatians as well. That six-word question for what does the Scripture say? Listen, that is a vital question for every matter of life, theology, practice, everything on this planet. We must always come back to that question. That question answers all issues of life. What does the Scripture say? In regards to the issues like, listen, we may have ideas about marriage. Wait, what does the scripture say about marriage? What does the scripture say about sex before marriage? What does the scripture say about how a husband is to behave in marriage and a wife is to behave in marriage? What does the scripture say about how we're to raise children? What does the scripture say about how to manage our money? What does the scripture say about how we're to live our everyday lives in relation to what's right and what's wrong? 
That has to be the fundamental basis for how we get the proper answers for every issue of life. You can ask any question and the answer should be rooted if you want the truth and the best thing for your life in that question. What does the scripture say about that issue? What's the scripture say about that topic? Well, we're having this situation. We're dealing with this problem at work. Or we're having this challenge in our, in our family life. Or we're trying to figure out, should we do this or shouldn't we do that? Listen, what does the scripture say in relation to that? That is the best and safest way to get the right answer to any question, whether you are 13 or 33 or figuring out the last thing you're deciding before you breathe your last breath. That is the way to come to right conclusions and especially, listen, theologically in regards to what's spiritually right, right and what's wrong. What is eternally right and what is eternally wrong. Don't base your theology off of you know, what I, I used to call salad bar theology where you know, I, me and someone else, we can walk up to the same salad bar. And, and so Chris and I walk up to the salad bar together and, and the same spread is, well, I like these and I like these. I don't like those. So I'll take a little of these and I'll take a little of these and a little of these. And then I'm right behind them. Well, I, I actually like what, so I'll take a little of these because that's what works for me best. And then I'll take a little bit of that and a little bit of that. And there you go. And people do that theologically. Well, I like this idea from that faith, and I like this idea over here. So, so I'm going to build my own theology, and that's, and I'm going to create my own God and my own worship system. So I'm going to build off of what I like. And people even do that with the Word of God. They, well, I'll take this verse from over here because that supports my goofy belief about this, and then I'll take that verse over here and, and put that under... Look, that's not theology. Theology is from front to back. What does the Scripture say? contextually accurately what does the bible say is a basis not well well my church taught me this is the way to get to heaven well listen i didn't mean no disrespect but your church didn't die on the cross for your sins and you're not going to stand before your church when you die and you're standing there in eternity and that moment you're going to stand before the god who loves you and created you and off of his terms determination will be made regarding your eternal destiny listen don't buy into what any spiritual leader or church you study what the bible says look at what the scripture says in regards to how a person is forgiven how they're saved and in every area of spiritual practice and your convictions and your theological understandings whether it be end times or the holy spirit what does the scripture say such an important issue and Paul here with great wisdom in an area that was so critical how's a person made right with God how's a person forgiven how's a person going to go to heaven Paul says whoa what does the scripture say not what does this esteemed religious person point to us or what do we believe or what are the rabbis of the current day saying Paul says no let's look at the Bible what does the Bible say in relation to things? So the bottom line on how Abraham was made right before God, Paul says, what does the scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. He says, the scripture says, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So he uses a scripture verse to answer the question. And that scripture there has a context. Genesis 15, Abraham, remember, was talking to God about an impossible situation that he could not resolve. He had a barren wife. 
They were past the age of childbearing and he was unable to do anything humanly to resolve the situation that he was facing. He could not, nor could his wife, produce or bring about life in a child. So he was saying, God, what am I going to do? My servant's going to become my heir. There's no way that we can produce for ourselves life. We can't do it. It's impossible. And it's at that moment that God promised Abraham Abraham, right, you can't do it through your own efforts or works, but I'm going to do it by a miracle that I'm going to accomplish on your behalf. It tells us in Genesis 15, verse 4 and 5, right before this verse here, that God said this, Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying, This one, your servant, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Abraham, look toward heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So Abraham says, God, I can't solve this problem. I can't produce life. I, I can't bring about for myself what is necessary. And God says, I know you can't do it, Abraham. But I'm going to accomplish and perform for you what you cannot perform for yourself. I'm going to do a miracle and cause you to have not just one, but many, many descendants. And it's at that point, Abraham now has a promise from God. Hear me. He has a promise from God. He has God's word of what God will perform. And upon hearing God's promise, how he would work, Romans 3, Paul says that Abraham, look, believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul says Abraham believed God. That is, he believed God's word. He believed God's promise to him. And as a result of what God declared and his belief in what God declared, believing God, what he said to him, that was accounted to him by God for his righteousness. It was his belief of what God said to him that God credited his account with righteousness. In response, God credited his spiritual bank account with righteousness. When you look at that word in verse 3, accounted there, it's actually a banking term. It's an accounting term. It's a term that spoke of crediting someone's account or depositing some resources into someone else's account. What it's telling us is this is that when Abraham chose to exercise faith and to believe God for what God said to him, at that moment when he believed, God made a transfer. God took his righteousness and put his righteousness, which is necessary to get into heaven, God took his righteousness and he put it into Abraham's account. I don't know if that sound happened when he did it, but he, he, he said, Abraham, I'm going to take away all your filthy, dirty sin. I'm going to subtract that from your account. And because you believed my word, because you believed my promise, not because you've been behaving well, Abraham, but because you believed my word of what I declared my promise, I am depositing my righteousness into your account so you are now righteous and right before me. And this is what Paul was bringing our attention to, that God, when Abraham believed, he was rendered righteous by God. His salvation, his forgiveness came as a result of his faith of his belief in God. And God established there a pattern or a principle whereby he would render men righteous through belief, through faith, not through behavior or works. Again, that's why Jesus ultimately said in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't say whoever behaves well before him 
Whoever accomplishes the religious duties. No, he said, whoever believes on Jesus shall not perish but have everlasting life. God established that standard and principle. Paul goes on to illustrate it now. He says, verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. So here Paul uses an illustration from the ranks of labor and employment practices. What he's illustrating here in verse 4, he says, listen, when you work at your job and you put in your hours and effort, and what happens? You deserve and you expect your compensation. So at the end of the week, after you have worked, he says, your boss is not showing you kindness or grace if he decides to sign your paycheck and give it to you at the end of the work week. No, your boss, if you've worked, is simply giving you, correct, what you justly earned. Now imagine if you work at a place of employment, imagine if you work all week long and then your boss were to come to you at the end of the week and say, look, I know how hard you've worked this week, all the hours you put in, all the extra things you've done. And since I am so caring, since I'm so generous, I've actually decided to sign your paycheck, right? You, I mean, you would hear that and you think, what? You owe me my paycheck. You're, you're, being generous to sign my paycheck? Wait a minute. This is how it works. I labor and then you pay me according to what I deserve because of the works that I've rendered to you. It's a debt given in return for labor and work you supplied. What Paul's saying is this is the way a lot of people think God works. Like he's a cosmic boss. That if somehow we work and we labor and we put forth enough effort, that that's what determines our spiritual standing or access into heaven. As if God says, you know, hey, okay, you finally worked enough, you're getting the promotion. The heaven promotion. There you go, you finally got it. You have hit the pinnacle and so we're promoting you. You're heaven bound now. And some people think in this works-based theology that that's how God works spiritually. But listen, that's works-based theology. That's not grace. That's not grace, and that's not through faith. He says, to him who works, verse 4, the wages aren't counted as grace, but just as a debt. Now imagine, on the other side of that, if in your place of employment, you did no work whatsoever. In fact, on top of not working, let's say you actually took advantage of all your freedoms at work, and you abused your position, maybe even ripped your boss off, and then your boss came to you at the end of the week and said, listen, I'm aware of what you've done all week long. I'm fully aware of what you have not done, and I'm aware of all the wrong things that you did, but I just feel compelled to be gracious to you. And because of that, in a direct deposit, I've already wired three times the amount you typically would get paid if you had work into your account just to bless you, just to be kind. Now, that would be grace, because that's a free gift that you didn't work for or don't deserve, and that's how God justifies sinners. Not by what they do or how they perform, but it's something that God gives as a gift. That's why Paul illustrates now the spiritual side of that verse 5. He says, but to him, notice, look verse 5, but to him who does not work, but just believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So Paul applies it spiritually, how God forgives and makes righteous the ungodly sinner. He says, not by works, but by their believing upon him. There are two things here, what God does and what we do in response. And what God does there in verse 5, it says, is God justifies the ungodly. Again, justify means to declare righteous and free from all charges. And again, why? Because of what Jesus did, his work, what he accomplished. 
And you, please don't miss there, I have it underlined in my Bible, in fact, circled in, in my Bible here, verse 5, where it says that God justifies, look at the term, the ungodly. The ungodly person. That word ungodly, we would say the wicked, the evil person, the, the unrighteous, sinful person. Again, not the person who has it all together. Not the person who says, yeah, I'm going to clean up my act or I'm going to get it right and, and fix myself so then I can come to God and be acceptable. That's not who God justifies. It's not those who are good and it's not even those who are better than others. Listen, I tried that for a while before I came to Christ as a wretched sinner and just said, save me, Lord. I tried for a while to clean them. I tried to turn over a new leaf and it was worse on the other side. It doesn't say that God forgives and accepts into heaven those who clean themselves up or have it all together. No, he forgives and saves those who come to realize their own sinfulness, who come to realize I'm not right with God. I'm ungodly. In and of myself, I'm not righteous. I'm, I'm not right. And therefore, God, in all my failures and all my guilt and all my mistakes, I come to you just as I am. In a, in a guilty condition, and God, I ask that you would wash me and forgive me because of what Jesus has done for me. Listen, the Bible tells us that God loved us at our absolute worst. Our absolute worst. So today, if you're here and you're trying to make God love you or give God a reason to love you because that's how you related to people, stop. He loved you when you were at your worst. The Bible says that when we were still ungodly and without strength, that's when Christ died on the cross for our sins. He loved you at your worst so you can come to him at your worst. In fact, in some ways, when you come to him in that failure and unworthy condition, no matter how evil you've been, no matter what you've done, there's no guilt that God can't take away. And no matter how rotten you may still be this morning, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What was he saying? Jesus was saying, I did not come to this earth to call people who think they're right with God. Because people who think they're right with God because of what they do or how well they think about themselves, Jesus said, they'll never come to me because they think they're all right. Jesus said, I didn't come to call people who think they're right with God. I came to call sinners to repentance, to life change. Jesus was saying, I came to this earth to call people who know their failures, who understand their sinners, people who come to realize, oh my gosh, I don't have it all together. I've made mistakes. I'm a mess and I can't save myself. Thank goodness Jesus came to save me. Jesus said those are who he has come for and our part is simply to believe in our sinful need and to rely upon what Jesus has done and to receive it for ourselves. This is what Paul's telling us here in verse 5. He says, to him who does not work, look, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Please hear me, in spiritual life, in eternal destiny, it is important that we learn to humbly receive and not proudly earn and acquire. Take the vocational idea out of your mind. I know that's how life operates on this earth, horizontally, but that's not how it works vertically. 
In spiritual matters, you must learn to humbly receive. And if you think or I think that we did something that make us righteous before God or we do something that makes us acceptable or right before God, quite honestly, not are we eternally deceived, but we're disregarding the very reason why Jesus Christ came to this earth. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2.21. It's critical. He said, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Do you hear that? Paul says, listen, I will never set aside that it is by the grace of God that I'm forgiven and I'm going to heaven or I have an opportunity to go to heaven. Because he said, if being right with God could come through the law, through any work or human effort or achievement, then he says, then Christ died in vain. In other words, Paul's saying, why did Jesus die then? There was no reason for him to die. If there was some hoop I could jump through, some five golden apples that you could go somehow, you know, steal from some dragon and some great effort, okay, okay, you've done enough. If there was something, anything that could be done, why would a good, loving, wholesome God send his pure and innocent son to this planet to live on this earth and then to be spit upon and mocked and despised and beaten and pinned to a cross and let his blood be poured out into the ground if there was something that I could do. That was all in vain then. That was all worthless. The point Paul's driving home is it was absolutely essential because there's nothing we can do. Our works would never be good enough. We must believe upon that work that God has accomplished. Paul goes on to use David as an example. He says, just as David, verse 6, also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. So he uses King David's life as another example of being justified not by works, but by faith alone. David, again, was Israel's probably one of their greatest kings. Remember, David was the king who the family line of Messiah would come through. David loved the Lord. David was a man after God's own heart, the Bible says. But that did not make David righteous in God's sight. It did not excuse him from his own errors and shortcomings. In fact, David himself understood he was a sinner and even wrote of his sin and the blessed gift of God's forgiveness and mercy in the Psalms that we have in the Old Testament. David discovered and described that blessedness of forgiveness and freedom from guilt. That's why verse 6 he says, David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. David understood like Abraham that blessed reality that by my faith alone am I right with God. That that I'm not right with God because of my behavior or what I do or don't do. And the one time David described that in a way more profound than ever was when he was writing Psalm 32 that Paul quotes here in verses 7 and 8. That though David was a godly man and a man after God's own heart, we know when we study the Bible, David had his fair share, did he not? Of really poor choices. Times when he made some really big blunders in this life. Probably one of his greatest major failures was when he compromised and committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then after he did it and found out of her pregnancy as a result of the adultery, then David went through a span of time for almost a year when he was trying to cover up that sin, and he even had her husband Uriah murdered 
so that he might quickly marry her and make people think that it was his child, in a, in a sense, as the marriage result, rather than the fact that adultery had happened. So David becomes guilty of violating the commandments of God. Adultery, murder, he's hiding his sin, willfully transgressed, and after he confessed his sin and asked God for mercy, and he broke, and he came clean, and he confessed his sin, which we read of in Psalm 51, David knew there was nothing that he could do to make things right. Listen, there was no offering or sacrifice for adultery. It was a capital crime. David, that's why he said in Psalm 51, sacrifice and offering, God, you don't desire, or else I would give. In other words, God, there's, there's no offering I can give to make myself right. But he said, I realize a, a, a broken and contrite heart, these, O oh God, you won't despise. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. He was depending upon God's forgiveness and his faith in a forgiving God and fully relying upon that and upon hearing from God that he was forgiven and that God was going to show mercy to him. David penned Psalm 32, verse 7 and 8 and declared, as Paul quotes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. David described this blessed experience of being forgiven and having your sins covered, knowing that God was not holding a record of his sin against him. And again, not because, listen, not because David had done something himself to atone for the sins and mistakes he made. But David knew it was because of his belief in God alone. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 7, just like Abraham, God gave David what? A promise, a promise that David, through your family line, the Messiah, the Savior of the world will come. And what did David do? He believed the promise. And when David believed the promise of the Savior and the Messiah to come looking ahead to the Savior, at that moment, God gave him a righteous standing and David knew that. So even though David still failed and stumbled and made mistakes and sins in his life, David knew that the basis of his forgiveness and God's mercy towards him and God not holding him eternally condemned for his guilt was not because of anything he could do to behave or perform, but because of his belief and his reliance upon God as a God of mercy in his life. And even as David looked ahead to, to Jesus' coming, we now look back to Jesus' coming in faith and are declared righteous by God in the same way. Though we may behave poorly and fail tremendously, God offers forgiveness for those who believe in Jesus sincerely, by faith, and have reliance in that very reality for forgiveness. Now let me just say something. That's a hard concept to swallow. That's difficult. Faith, right, it just doesn't seem like enough. It just doesn't seem like enough. Wait a minute, just believe I mean, there's nothing that I can do? No. <laughs> there's, and, and for us, that's difficult because we feel like we need to do something. We feel like we want to earn a little. I got to earn a little bit, man. I got to do something. I got to contribute something. And that's where humility comes into play. That's where coming to God like a little child and accepting things on God's terms. But see, that's also where the blessed appreciation comes of salvation. Look, you may be here this morning and maybe you're going through some things and you're depressed or discouraged regarding your life and, and you don't feel very blessed at all. Well, again, can I say this? What does the scripture say? Well, look what the scripture says in verse 7 and 8. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins 
are covered. Listen, that's the truth this morning. The truth of the matter this morning is, is no matter how blessed you think you are circumstantially, God's word says if your sins are blotted out and you're forgiven for all the stupid, selfish, rotten things you've done, God says you are so blessed. Your sins are erased. You're washed clean and you're going to get to get out of this world and go to heaven one day rather than burn in the damnation of hell forever. God says, my goodness, do you see how blessed you are? Do you see how blessed you are? Again, what does the scripture say? That is true blessedness that God brings to our attention to remember. Verse 9 says, and does this blessedness come? Upon the circumcised only, that is, the Jews only, or upon the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then, Paul says, well then how was that righteousness accounted? Was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So Paul brings to light the answer to another important question. When was Abraham declared righteous before God? Paul simply asked the question, because the Jew would argue, wait a minute, our father Abraham, he observed circumcision. And because he observed circumcision, that's proof. Faith is not enough. Abraham observed circumcision. Paul says, correct, here we go again. But when did God declare Abraham righteous? When did he declare him righteous? Paul asked the question, was it when he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? And again, if we look at what the scripture says, Paul reminds us here, it was not while he was circumcised, he says, verse 10, but while he was uncircumcised that God declared him right in his sight. Again, in Genesis chapter 15 is where Abraham believed God's promise and God accounted him righteous. Two chapters later in Genesis chapter 17, then God introduces the rite of circumcision and tells Abraham to obey the rite of circumcision 14 to 15 years later after God already declared him righteous. So Paul's saying, wait a minute, God declared him righteous, yes, but he says God declared him righteous 14 to 15 years before he ever observed circumcision. So circumcision had nothing to do with him becoming righteous before God. He then goes on to say, verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might notice be the father of all who would believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness of God may be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, the Jews, but also who walk in the steps of faith which Abraham our father had while still uncircumcised. So in verses 11 and 12, Paul is saying, listen, the order of way God did things, that he declared him righteous first 15 years before circumcision and the obedience to it was ever introduced into his life, he says that was purposeful. In verse 11, he says, so that was so that all those who were uncircumcised could become righteous just like Abraham through their belief and faith alone. And he says in the same way, the order was purposeful, verse 12, so that all those who are circumcised, the Jews who observed circumcision, would realize very clearly that they should not rely upon that ritual as the impartation of their righteousness before God. That they wouldn't think, well, hey, I did the ritual. 
So therefore now I'm righteous. And would we not be very honest to have to admit this morning that there are circles of the church that indicate to people, if you observe this ritual, if you eat this or partake of that ritual or sprinkled at a certain time in your life, that imparts righteousness to you. And the Bible says, no, it does not. It, there's nothing wrong with the ritual or the ordinance, but that does not impart righteousness. Faith imparts righteousness. Belief in what God has done. That's why Paul goes on, verse 13, to say, For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So here Paul's addressing another important issue that would arise in the mind of the Jews. They'd want to keep it up. He said, and that was many would argue, wait, but our father Abraham, he was a righteous man and he adhered to the law. And because of that, as his seed, we, in a sense, we inherit his righteousness as the Jewish people, as the seed of the lineage of Abraham. We're automatically righteous by the law that Abraham observed. And Paul would say, here we go again. Wait a minute. Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis chapter 15. And Paul's trying to say, it was not through the law. Well, wait a minute. Why? Because the law didn't come till 400 years later, through the time of Moses. So Paul's trying to say, listen, Abraham didn't have a chance to keep the law. The law of Moses didn't come till 400 years later down the road, so his righteousness had nothing to do with his keeping laws and rituals that ultimately were introduced. The promise is not through the law, but through faith, Paul's trying to drive home. The point, again, a right standing with God and access into heaven is not acquired. Please, hear me. It may not jive with logic, but being right with God is not acquired through any work, any divine sacrament that you can receive, any religious activity or effort or keeping laws, but it is through the righteousness of faith. It is a gift that is received by trust in Jesus Christ. And I know, I know that is hard to swallow because people are incurably religious. We love being religious. Why? Because then there's a sense of superiority. I did something, man. I deserved it. I earned it, man. I paid my dues. I did my classes. I went. I gave my money. I did this. I did that. And because we're incurably religious, that's hard for us to swallow. That it's received as a free gift. Paul says, verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void. In other words, faith has no purpose anymore. And the promise, it's made of no effect. There's no need for a promise from God for salvation anymore because the law brings about wrath. As we talked about last time, the law reveals our guilt and that we are sinners. It just shows us our condition. It can't solve our condition for where there's no law, there's simply no transgression. Verse 16, he summarizes, therefore it is of, has he said it enough? Faith, that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be, look at this word, sure to all the seed. Not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It is of faith, so the promise may be sure to all. God has made one simple universal way that everybody can be made right with him and forgiven through faith. Why? Because it doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, you can believe. 
It doesn't matter if you were born in Africa or America, you can believe. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or your ethnicity. It doesn't matter if you're smart and intelligent or whether you are the person whose driveway don't even reach all the way to the street. You can still believe. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. Everybody can believe. And God says, that I want it to be sure. I want people to have the assurance that they're forgiven, the assurance they can go to heaven. And if you can only be right with God by what you do, nobody would ever be sure and they'd never be at rest. They'd always be wondering, did I do enough? I, did I do enough? I mean, or did I do enough recently or am I good enough? And nobody would ever have assurance. And God says, I want everybody to have assurance. I want everybody to have that rest and be sure. You know, two workers, story was told, were working on the same steep roof. And they were both offered safety gear to do that work on that steep roof. And one worker said, you know what, yeah, I'll take the safety gear. The other one said, nah, I don't need it, man, I'll do it my own way. Well, the worker who received the safety gear, he was much more productive and he was much more relaxed all day long because he knew that he was sure and he was safe and he could be at rest regarding his condition. The one who refused the safety gear offered to him was less productive and was stressed and could not relax because all day long he could work with one hand, but he had to hold on for his own dear life with the other hand. That's the difference between trying to earn your way to be right with God or just believing by faith and receiving the gift of forgiveness of God's salvation. The person who believes and receives can rest. Listen, this morning, are you at rest regarding your eternal condition? If you believe, you can be at rest. You can be at rest. And if you're not sure or you're not at rest, then maybe you haven't chosen yet to exercise belief and to pray a prayer of salvation and to receive. And God would say this morning, how about we finally rest? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Rest for your soul. Rest for your soul. Amen?